You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to dote upon. Hello and welcome to episode 122 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the passion of saints perpetua and felicity. I'm Marie Haas moderating today, and with me are Katie Grubbs and our guest Anna Kelsey Powell. Let's introduce ourselves for anyone who's new to the show. Katie, would you go first? Absolutely. Uh, My name is Katie Grubbs, and I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas, and I um, am also a Bible study teacher. Um, at my church and spend most of my time caring for uh, our four children, um, four kids that I have with David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Thanks, Katie. Anna, what about you? Uh, I'm Anna Kelsey Powell, and I'm a candidate for a Master's of Divinity degree at Yale Divinity School in my second year. Uh, I'm a candidate for ordination in the United Church of Christ, and I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois. Thanks, Anna. I didn't realize you were a candidate for ordination. That's really cool. Um, yeah. Uh, and we're, we're really glad to have you on the show today. Uh, so I'm Marie Haas. I'm a regular panelist. I finished an MDiv at Yale Divinity School last year, and I was one of my classmates. And um, now I'm living in Connecticut with my spouse, Jonathan, and our 11-month-old baby, who will be a year old by the time this episode airs, which is so exciting. Um, so... Before we get into discussing some of the details of The Passion of Saints Perpetua and Felicity, let me give you a little bit of background on it and give um, a summary of it since I realize that probably many of our listeners might not have read this text or even encountered it before. So this is an early Christian text that tells the story of the martyrdoms of a group of Christians who are killed in the arena at Carthage on March 7th of 203, which is why we just had the feast today for Perpetua and Felicity on March 7th, if you look up what their their feast day is. The core of the text is an account that's said to be by one of the martyrs, Perpetua. In it, she tells about her visions and her time in prison before the execution. If this account was actually written by Perpetua, this is one of the like very, very few pieces of writing by a woman among early Christian texts. And even if it wasn't actually written by her, it's still really significant that it was thought to have been written by her. The full account, which includes uh, editor's sort of narr- narration of the martyrs' deaths, was probably finished relatively soon after the martyrdom took place, since there's a reference to it in a Tertullian work that was probably written before 208. There's also a later liturgical reworking of Perpetua's story, uh, Perpetua and Felicity's story, in the shortened form of a trial transcript, which was probably meant to be read in congregations. And there were sermons on Perpetua and Felicity by Augustine and others, so it was a very well-known story. 
So in this text, Perpetua's account is the core of the text, but there's also at least two other authors who are involved. One I've already mentioned is the editor or redactor who introduces and concludes the accounts and who gives the narrative for the actual deaths of the martyrs. And the other one is another martyr, Satyrus, who has this short section in which he tells about a vision that he has. The account has four major sections, First, there's the editor's introduction, and the editor in this argues for the importance of new visions and acts of martyrs and introduces this group of martyrs. In the group are Felicity, who the editor describes as a slave, and Webia Perpetua, who is described as a woman well-born, liberally educated, and honorably married. The second section is, as I said, the core of the text, Perpetua's own account, which the editor says was written in her own hand. The narrative in Perpetua's account switches back and forth between waking scenes, which are mostly conversations which are with her father in which she refuses to give in to his arguments for renouncing her faith, and then there's also sleep four sleeping visions. So in the first waking section, we have Perpetua's first conversation with her father. Uh, we have an account of the group being baptized and a description of their suffering in prison, as well as a description of Perpetua's worry about her breastfeeding child. Then we have Perpetua's first vision. In that vision, she steps on a serpent's head in order to climb a ladder with her fellow martyr Satyrus. And they reach a garden and are fed cheese or milk by a man dressed as a shepherd. Then switching back to the waking world again, Perpetua tells about her second encounter with her father in prison, and about appearing before the procurator Hilarionis, where she makes the defiant declaration, I am a Christian, and where she again refuses to give in to her father's pleas. Then we go to Perpetua's second and third visions. In these visions, she sees her brother Dinocrates, who had died of a facial cancer as a small boy. In the second vision, she dreams that he's suffering and his face is still wounded and he can't reach a pool of water. And after praying for him, Perpetua's third vision shows Dinocrates reaching the water and he's joyful and he only has a scar on his face. Then the account switches back to the waking world with Perpetua's fourth encounter with her father. And finally, Perpetua has her fourth vision, the end of her narrative. In this vision, Perpetua is in the arena. She's set to fight what she calls a certain foul, Egyptian foul in appearance. And uh, in the vision, Perpetua says she became a man, and she wrestles with the Egyptian. She wins, and a giant figure dressed as a gladiator trainer awards her with a branch of golden apples. Perpetua's narrative ends with her interpretation of her vision that... I was going to fight with the devil and not with the beasts, but I knew that victory was to be mine. After Perpetua's narrative, the third section of the text is another first-person account. Satyrus tells about a vision of himself and Perpetua in paradise, where there are also other martyrs. Then, the, in the fourth and final section, the editor takes up the account in a third-person narrative that tells about Felicity, who gives birth a month early in answer to prayer so that she can join the martyrs in the arena. And then he tells about the group's deaths in the arena. This includes a description of Perpetua and Felicity facing a wild cow and standing side by side, and of Perpetua ultimately guiding the sword of a novice gladiator to her own throat. Finally, the editor concludes with praising the martyrs. 
So that's a summary of the major points of the text. Before we talk about that gender change scene in the fourth vision, and about how the text treats martyrdom more generally, let's briefly tell how we first encountered Perpetua and Felicity, and what's important about this text. So I'm, I, for myself, I first heard of it in uh, an early African theologies course that I was in last year, which was taught by Awa Ende Mikhail and Andrew McGowan. And I was excited about this text when I found out about it because of what I mentioned a minute ago, that there's really so few early Christian texts written by women. Um, so it's really valuable for that reason. And even more so as a reminder of like how much of our theology and Christian history is rooted in Africa, um, which was a great thing about that course in general. Um, Anna, what about you? Had you heard of Perpetua and Felicity before that early African theologies class? Uh, I had, actually, um, but not until I got to seminary, which was interesting because my undergraduate degree is also in theology. Um, so the fact that I hadn't encountered it before that is a bit surprising, I suppose. Um, but one of our requirements, obviously, is to take history courses, and I opted to take early Christian history my first semester of seminary, and we read Perpetua and Felicity. And... Um, it was funny, actually, in preparation for, for coming on and doing the podcast, I went back to look um, at the paper that I wrote for our early African theologies course, and I realized that Perpetua and Felicity has popped up. So I've been in seminary now for four semesters. Uh, Perpetua and Felicity has appeared in at least three papers that I've written now, Um and frankly, that that's not my favorite area of study, so it's a little surprising. Um, but yeah, I think it's important uh, for a number of reasons. My own area of study uh, leans more towards womanist interpretations and hermeneutics. And so um, I take a, a different view, I think, of the text than perhaps uh, most of my classmates do. But it's, yeah, it's it's... It's a fascinating text and one that uh, I find something new in every time I encounter it. Thanks. Yeah, it's got so many sort of layers to it every time you get get back into it, I think. Um, what about you, Katie? Where did you encounter this text? So my first encounter with this text is actually very recent. Um, this semester, I'm at church. I'm teaching a class, a new class that I've been that I've built for this semester called Legacies of Faith. So every week, um, back in the fall, I taught church history. And then um, because I, we are in a, uh, a Baptist church, and I will say it's, I feel like it's definitely a fault of those of us on the kind of reformed, um, and especially more kind of low church reformed, like Baptist side, that we don't necessarily know that much always about church history, um, simply because um, the genesis, if you will, of our denomination has been so much more recent. So I wanted to try to remedy that. So last, last fall, I taught church history. Um, and then, which was really fun. And, and, you know, I got a ton out of prepping the class. My ladies learned a ton from that class, but, um, it was at times frustrating because we were talking about all the most kind of quote, important figures of church history. And so often it ended up that I was just telling them about man after man, after man, after man. <laughs> um, so this spring I've been teaching the class, right? I mean, you know, so this spring I'm teaching this class, legacies of faith. So each week we've looked at a different woman or women, um, and it's more of a tighter focus. So, and each week has been a different type of woman. So, um, the, the very first week we talked about Mary, 
um, as someone completely unique. Um, and then there was a week we talked about writers and we talked about Anne Bradstreet and uh, a great Puritan poet, Mary Carey, um, in England at the same time as Anne Bradstreet. Um, we had a week where we talked about mothers and we talked about St. Monica. Um, but the week we talked about martyrs, I had went looking for early church examples and I kind of stumbled on this text of Perpetua and Felicity because I had not, I had not read it before and, um, immediately was kind of captured by it. And so, um, several, probably four weeks ago, um, I taught a class about this text, um, to my ladies. They were completely blown away by it. Um, and we had some really interesting discussion about, um, about the visions and all kinds of different things that are happening in this text. And so, um, it's something that I have come to very recently, but really, really have been enjoying and have found a really, um, and it was also interesting drawing parallels to a more modern. So that same day we talked about uh, perpetual and felicity, and then we moved forward in time and we talked about lady Jane Grey. So, um, they kind of got two different snapshots. Um, and that was particularly interesting too, to think about the kind of political dimensions of that other martyrdom. Um, not that this one is apolitical, right. But, um, so yeah, it, has been cool. Um, and I think that this text, um, was interesting in all kinds of ways and taught me a lot about, um, the situation at that time in that place, um, for these martyrs. So that's, that's kind of how I came, came to it. That sounds like such a great series. Yeah. Um, so let's move into now talking a little bit more about some of the details of this text. Let's start off with talking about that gender change scene that I mentioned where Perpetua has the vision that she's in the arena. Um, Katie, could you start us off uh, talking about that? Okay, so um, this this vision is super interesting because she has this vision of herself triumphing in the arena. And um, so kind of begins, uh, she's uh, Pomponius, who's the deacon, um, one of the deacons who's been um, in contact with them and um, kind of supporting them, comes in this vision to take her to the arena and they pass through a rugged and winding way. Um, and she had been, she knew that she was supposed to be condemned to face the beasts, but there were no beasts. And instead, there's this Egyptian um, who is meant to symbolize the devil. Um, and that's what she says later. She realizes this is what the, the vision means. Um, and he's foul in appearance. And she says, handsome young men came to me as my helpers and supporters. And she says, and I was stripped naked and I became a man. Um, I don't know if that's meant to indicate that when she, her clothes were stripped off, she realized that she was male in this vision or if she saw herself transform um, from woman to man. Um, and basically she has prepared the way men would be to do gladiatorial combat. Um, and then, um, as you said earlier, Marie, this, this giant man comes out, um, and says if she wins, she gets this branch of golden apples. Um, the most interesting thing, one of the most interesting things to me about this vision is that she describes in detail the exact moves that happened during this fight. Um, he kept trying to grab, grab hold of my feet while I kept kicking him in his face with my heels. Um, and I was raised up into the air and I began to strike him stepping on his face. She even talks about like knitting her fingers together, joining her hands and pushing down his head. So this this really physicalized um, description of combat. And in the end, she is triumphant. He falls on his face and she steps on his head. The crowd shouts. She and her supporters begin to sing hymns and she is given the branch. And when she wakes up, she says, and I knew that I was going to fight with the devil and not with the beasts, but I knew that victory was to be mine. This is the story of what I did the day before the final conflict. And it's an interesting vision for a lot of reasons. Um, 
but I, I, I was actually talking about it with David last night and he mentioned something which to me, which I did not realize cause I've never, I haven't made a study of Greek, but he said, you know, um, that vision is interesting because the, the Greek word, um, for courage basically means manliness. Um, and that it was maybe that one reason she's conceiving in her vision of herself as male is because, you know, if even linguistically in, in her world to be, to have courage means to be manly, that that could be one reason that this is kind of how she's envisioning it in her, in her dream. Um, I think it's very interesting that she has this dream of herself, um, as male, um, because I mean, in a vision, anything is possible, right? So it's interesting that she has that even in a, a vision or a dream, um, she can only defeat this opponent in this manly guise. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about what I think that means in terms of you know, the decision is sent to her by God, what um, what that is supposed to mean. But I do think that it it shows her envisioning spiritual combat in the manner of her time. Um, you know, and so if it was always men fighting in the arena as gladiators, I mean, you know, people, you know, all different kinds of people were sent into the arena, but if usually, you know, a woman would face a beast, um, if she's, um, imagining the devil as male, then maybe that's why also why she's envisioning herself as male as she battles with the devil. I don't know. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And I'm still trying to think through what I think exactly what it means. What did you guys think about this kind of gender flipped vision? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of ways to approach how this gender, uh, gender switching might have to do with her martyrdom. So I think that you and David, um, I, I would take the approach that you and David sort of are suggesting in that she, it seems like she thinks that she has to take on a kind of masculinity in order to be successful in having, uh, like this courage and endurance in the martyrdom. Um, which of course is a, like maybe a problematic thing to think that the martyrs have to become masculine or become male in, in some way, uh, the female martyrs do, in order to achieve true martyrdom um, and true virtue, which is another of those words that uh, incorporates masculinity and ties it to, um, well, virtues. Uh, so, uh, and also it's interesting too that this scene, um, people have talked about how it's kind of the culmination of a masculinization of Perpetua that takes place at other points in the text too as well, like, and uh, in, in those conversations with her father, um, she's kind of masculinized, masculinized and he's kind of feminized with him sort of weeping and Perpetua make, maintaining her own emotional control and just having a certain kind of power over him. Um, she's also kind of masculinized in like the, just the authority that she has in dealing with other authorities in the text. So like she, she convinces the prison authorities to feed the group before the games and, um, she, and she convinces them to, uh, not let the not force the group of martyrs to dress in sort of demeaning costumes uh, when they're taken into the arena, um, and she's also like she also has to give up the feminine role of focusing on family obligations, both with her father and with her baby, who's eventually taken away mm -hmm. from her by her father. Um, so there's all these other aspects of like masculinization going on in the text, as well as this vision that we have here. Anna, what, what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there in terms of uh, implicit and explicit gender roles. Um, I, 
that's I mean the gladiatorial scene is is one that I struggle with because I think it has a lot of parallels with the earlier scene that you mentioned, Katie, with the ladder. Um, and that's actually part of what I've, I've written about as sort of a literary comparison between the two. Um, because I think that, and I'll get to this when, when I sort of talk about my analysis of, of the text, but I think that it's, it's trying to convince us of something. And so part of that is what it means to be a martyr. And it's not just giving up what we would expect. It's giving up our expectations of ourselves and our cultural and societal roles, which for Perpetua is, is her, her femaleness. Um, so it is in her relationship with her fellow martyrs. It is in her relationship with her father and very explicitly in her relationship with her child. Um, so the fact that that then spills over into her vision in the arena where she physically becomes a man, uh, I think is really telling. Yeah, that's really interesting. This idea of like giving up expectations of yourself as a part of the martyrdom, um, that's being preached here or, um, taught to the, this early Christian audience. Um, oh, another thing I should mention in terms of the gendering of Perpetua in the text, it seems like there's a contrast set up between her and Felicity and that um, while Perpetua has all these kind of masculinizing aspects, Felicity remains like really feminized throughout. Um, and some people have said that maybe this is a function of class, that because Perpetua is upper class, Felicity as a slave is lower class, then mm-hmm. yeah. Perpetua mm-hmm. is able to have sort of more uh, more leeway in the kinds of gender positions she can take, whereas Felicity just doesn't. Um, oh, and it, another thing is that in the editor's sections and the descriptions of Perpetua, there's a kind of countering of some of the masculinizing aspects too, like uh, perhaps uh, to make her not be too dangerous of a role model for like the early Christian women who would encounter this story. So like when she's in the (laughs) arena, there's that moment where she has to like modestly cover herself after she's Mm -hmm. tossed by the wild cow. And she even asks for a pin to do up her hair while she's in the arena and apparently gets it. So (laughs) um, kind of an interesting thing too. Uh, Well, should we move on to what you had prepared to talk about, Anna? Sure, sure. So I think I take a different, um, I sort of indicated, I think I take a different um, view of martyrdom than maybe most folks do. Um, I don't want to say I take a cynical view of martyrdom, um, but that that wouldn't be wholly inaccurate. Um, And part of that comes from having um, a more liberationist or womanist uh, lens. So reading these texts, I always am asking, um, what is, what's the goal? What's, what's the ultimate goal? So with a cynical eye, it would be easy to read any martyr text, not just Perpetual Felicity, but read any martyr text as um, centering the glorification of, of martyrdom and glorification of death. But in fact, the actual definition of martyr is witness. 
And so part of what I've argued, and I think we'll probably argue until I'm blue in the face, um, is that the witness is in fact the story, is in fact the fact that we have this text thousands of years later. Um, you know, we had, I don't, I, I wish I had the figures in front of me. It's been a year since this class, so I, and I'm not good with numbers. But I mean, we had thousands of martyrs die, but we have very few accounts, uh, martyr accounts. Um, so Tertullian is, is quoted as saying, you know, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. But if we talk about blood as ink, that transforms how we look at martyrdom. Um, if in fact the point of the church is the great commission to go and make disciples is, is our call to die in the, the arena or is our call to be transformational in the world. Um, and so, you know, I tend to read martyr accounts with a skeptical eye. Uh, like I said, I think I've written <laughs> three papers at this point, um, that use perpetual and felicity, uh, one of which was comparing modern martyrs with ancient martyrs. So perpetual and felicity and Ignatius, a polycarp against, um, Bonhoeffer and Romero and talking about sort of what is the point of what we're doing for what is it that we are, um, that we're trying to accomplish and that we're dying for. Um, and in our, when we look at the narratives, um, and it may just be that, and I've, I've argued this, it may just be that it's not stated well, but a cynical eye can read it as glorification of the martyr rather than, um, expansion of the church and Christ's message. So I think that's something that like we have to unpack when we're analyzing any of these texts. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think in this text, like there's especially a lot of the glorification of the suffering specifically of martyrdom as opposed to um, like working in the world outside of the, the, the martyr experience. Is that sort of what you're thinking about? with this text specifically. That, yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely a part of it. Um, there's definitely this idea of, you know, gaining the crown of martyrdom that's mentioned multiple yeah. times throughout the text. Um, and the idea of um, desiring to die in a specific way that will um, elicit uh, a response as opposed to, you know, I'm going forth to make this a witness. Um, so I mean, it's, just, it's just interesting the way that the, um, the text is crafted around that. And as I said, part of this, I think, is how we write to specific audiences and things that may not come down through the years quite as well or that are not written the way that we would have written them, um, but can be read in a way that is, um, that, yeah, that lends itself to a bit of cynicism. For sure. Um, oh, one scene that seems sort of interesting to me in what you're talking about, like with the crafting of the dying in the specific way, is um, the death of Satyrus. Because, like, mm -hmm. in that last part where the the editor is giving the various deaths of the the martyrs, the breakdown. Yeah, he's, yeah. 
it, it's also trying to match them up, the deaths up to specific things that the martyrs have prayed for, had visions of, sort of to proving to like prove the efficacy of those prayers and visions, I guess. Um, and exactly, yeah, he had desired that every animal yeah. would be a part of this, and then somebody else was specifically afraid. Um, I believe it was of the the lion. I'm trying to remember. Um, but there was a specific animal that he was afraid of, and yeah. he was never touched by that specific animal. I mean, it's just these things that are yeah. Satyrus was was he was afraid of the yeah. bear, and then the he was the tied on the bridge, and the bear was set to come out to get him, but the bear stayed in his cage, so he yeah. ends up dying from <laughs> the bite of a leopard, which is what he had predicted he would die from. But as he's dying, yeah. he has he takes um there there's this soldier who who was sort of converted by watching this whole experience the soldier Putin's mm-hmm. and Satyrus takes this ring and dips it in his own blood and gives it his to, to Putin yeah. like what you <laughs> <laughs> turned it to him as a legacy it says so it's like the blood is the actual legacy <laughs> right which is also the question like how how is the martyr's blood I mean, it's, it's kept as a token in the same way that someone might have kept, let's say, you know, a piece of the true cross or, you know, I mean, like, like, what are we saying about the blood of martyrs as being significant? I mean, the way that reliquaries were kept, um, are we like elevating this relic to that level? Um, like, I just think that there's, and as somebody who, who has issues with, you know, theologies of, of, you know, suffering servant, um, things, uh, that, that's, Glorifying suffering is is a slippery slope, um, mm-hmm. especially among marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I will say that um, one thing that is interesting to me, though, is you know, in line with what you're saying, I was thinking about Felicity um, praying that she would go into labor and have her baby so that she could be allowed to die with everybody else because they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't put a pregnant woman in the arena, and that's you know feels so kind of excessive to be seeking suffering but you know in the text it also says that she she wanted to go along with everyone that she had been imprisoned with and not be left behind to kind of be executed with common criminals um and that is interesting to me too because that almost feels like that in addition to wanting to just die with her friends and not be among strangers that she it's it's a way of of elevating herself right she's a slave so you know and it's i think part of that is a class thing again you know does she you know she doesn't want to die alone with common criminals after everybody else has been killed she wants to go to the arena and get this honor of being a martyr alongside you know perpetua and these other people i just i found that interesting and i I noticed that this time when i didn't necessarily notice it the first time i was i was studying through this yeah yeah the thing that always strikes me about that um that whole that whole issue with with childbirth and them praying for her to go into labor is they're actually praying for her to go into labor early which is such a strange like i understand you know wanting to to go to the arena as as a group of faithful um christians but that's just such a strange moment for me of them all collectively praying that she'll go into labor early. I don't know if you all have thoughts on yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, but... it's also strange that she wouldn't presumably have the glory of martyrdom if she died in prison or if she died with the common criminals because, like, mm-hmm. there's another martyr in the group who does die in prison and that death is described as not without favor and it's still a martyrdom. So, like, why would her dying in some other way than in the arena with the group be, like, not a full martyrdom is, is kind of a question yeah. here. 
Um, and I'll, one other note on that, that is, this is purely incidental, but it was something that, um, that I wanted to say because it's interesting. So you know how in the text it says that she they pray for her to go into labor early, and she does, and it just tosses off that she has complications in labor as you do in the eighth month of pregnancy. Did you guys notice that? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the deal with that, I don't know if you guys know this, um, I did a whole bunch of research on um, kind of birth beliefs and structures and stuff for my for my dissertation but um in in the in the ancient world i think but obviously because it's mentioned in this text but through into the early modern period the belief was that if you went into labor in the eighth month of pregnancy it was going to be terrible um in the early modern period they would go as far as to say if you go into labor in month seven usually it's fine seven or nine ninth month is fine but the eighth month i think for possibly astrological or numerological reasons, but don't quote me on that. The eighth month was believed you, you a, a bad time to go into labor. You did not want to go into labor in month eight. And that blew me away when I first found it out because, you know, you would think that especially in the past, sooner would always be worse, be worse. right? Yeah. But they believed that if the baby came in month seven, mom and baby were both likely to do better than if the baby came in month eight. And I didn't, I was thinking of that as an early modern belief because that's what I knew it as and then I read this text and was and was like whoa okay that was that that belief was around a lot earlier than I realized because it's being mentioned in this text just as fact oh if you go into labor in the eighth month it's going to be terrible as it was for her I just I found that super interesting um fascinating and it does emphasize like the level of how much pain Felicity and the group are paying or like praying for her to have here (laughs) to be able to yeah, because they knew where she was in in her pregnancy, um, and it, it to me that's one of those details too that su- that, that suggests or confirmed that this is an actual real event that happened, the martyrdom at least, whatever we mm-hmm. want to think about the visions, and not a, a, a te- like not some kind of story that was made up wholesale later, right? To right. like you know um, to give a good martyr account for people to read, because why yeah, would you put that in? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's like interesting little details throughout this text, like in the vision, the second vision of Dinocrates, where she's like, he can reach the water, and then he was playing around in it, like children do. Like this seems like the kind of thing that (laughs) you wouldn't just make up. (laughs) Like I don't know. Right. Um, Okay, so we're talking about childbirth, so let's move into what I had prepared to talk about with family and motherhood in the text, because that's sort of related, if that's all right. so one thing uh, in the way that martyrdom is treated here, it seems like there's this real contrast between like having these family ties and family obligations and being able to fulfill martyrdom or to fulfill the martyr's role in as full and as honorable a way as possible. Um, so like we've mentioned, Perpetua and Felicity both have to give up their babies to be cared for by others. Um, Perpetua doesn't give in to her father. Um, she has uh, conflicts with her father throughout the text. And um, also Perpetua's, Perpetua and Felicity, there's no husbands or like fathers of their children that come into the text. So they're sort of just cut off from that aspect of family life in terms of what's actually present in the text. Um, so it seems like the the text is sort of you could read the Christian community as this kind of chosen family that's opposed to like the biological families in the text. Um, and that's, I'm mentioning because it's one thing that's, it, you could sort of see resonating with queer communities today. Um, one thing I should have mentioned earlier in talking about this text is that uh, Perpetua and Felicity are sort of these, they've become kind of patron saints of uh, queer folks, so much mm-hmm. so that you, when you look at the queer Bible commentary, which is something I've, I've 
passed on in the passing on sections a few times now in this podcast, uh, the cover of that commentary is a modern icon of Perpetua and Felicity, even though, of course, they don't appear in the Bible. Um, so mm-hmm. part of how this came about, I think, is... Um, kind of this tradition of reading Perpetua and Felicity as a couple, which isn't really, like, that's not actually in the narrative. Uh, Felicity's never mentioned in Perpetua's section of the narrative, um, but I think maybe this comes about because of, like, the powerful image of the two women standing side by side as they face martyrdom, and also the martyrs, you know, exchange holy kisses before they're martyred, so there's that. Um, and their husbands aren't there at all, which... Um, so, like, I guess the connection between the co-sufferers seems, like, stronger than any kind of sexual, heterosexual bond. That's perhaps a reason why this tradition developed. Um, so, like, of course, reading Perpetua and Felicity as a couple would be anachronistic, um, but it's still, like, fine to co-opt them as <laughs> a, a, a story for us to use. Um, but uh, one thing that isn't so anachronistic anachronistic would be the way that the Christian community with this like self-identification that bonds you with others in this particular way um, can replace a biological family Um, that's something that's kind of interesting looking at this text from a queer perspective Um, and also thinking about like family ties in the text going back to what we were just talking about with childbirth um, it's interesting to me that uh, the, the way the text treats women's bodies and the maternal body in relation to martyrdom, um, it seems like a lot of time uh, the maternal body is sort of opposed to martyrdom. Like the women have to become male symbolically or perpetua does at least <laughs> to, to be martyrs. Um, the women, both of them have to shed maternity as like their role that they're supposed to be fulfilling as mothers because that seems to contrast with their roles as martyrs so like at the beginning we have Perpetua worried about her baby and then when her father takes the baby and refuses to give him back suddenly there's this kind of this quasi miraculous moment where Perpetua just stops lactating and the mm-hmm. baby's just <laughs> totally weaned all at once no problem Perpetua says uh, that this is so that I might not be tormented by worry for my child or by the pain in my breast. So um, it's like that kind of suffering and pain is being removed so that she can be able to experience like the real, actual, valuable suffering of martyrdom. Um, so it's like a real contrast there. And then perpetu- and then Felicity, I'm sorry, Felicity's pregnancy that we were just talking about, that's kind of this obstacle to her being a martyr. So she has to give birth early so that she can join the others. Um, And there's this really interesting moment when she's in labor where the guard uh, who's watching asks her how, if she's suffering so much now, how will she be able to endure the suffering when she's thrown to the beasts? Um, And Felicity says, now I alone suffer what I'm suffering, but then there will be another inside me who will suffer for me because I'm going to suffer for him. Um, So that's, that's like a really interesting quote to me because like on the one hand on like a spiritual level it seems like it's kind of valorizing like pregnancy and childbearing in some way because we have the image of Christ as this child inside of Felicity Um, but then on the other hand it's actually contrasting her actual child and her actual pregnancy and childbirth 
with her yeah. ability to be a martyr <laughs> and to suffer the mm-hmm. pain of martyrdom. Um, so uh, it's like the two things going on at once. And there's also then the question of why she's alone in this pain. Like Christ isn't suffering with her in childbirth. Why? Why is this like less valuable suffering <laughs> if we're going to value suffering, which as you've been mentioning, Anna, is kind of a problem mm-hmm. in the first place. Um, yeah. And it seems like it's because like childbirth is this more a lesser and more degrading kind of suffering because when Felicity goes into the arena the editor's narration says that she's going from blood to blood now to be washed after childbirth in a second baptism so it's the idea that like this blood of childbirth is something that has to be washed away by this better more spiritual blood of um, the, the, the suffering of martyrdom in, in the arena as the second baptism um, so mostly it seems like if you're going to be a martyr, you can't be a mother, um, or you can't remain a mother, um, and uh, the suffering that's associated with motherhood, whether it's like perpetuous painful breasts or uh, that she doesn't actually have, um, or her worry for a child that's removed, um, or Felicity's labor pains, all that has to be overcome or gotten rid of in order to get on with like the real business of this truly valuable suffering for Christ. Um, so it's like these two different levels of suffering and only like the, the martyrdom in the arena is like the real suffering that's actually worth something. Um, what, what do you guys think about that? I'm wondering. I mean, the part about her being rebaptized in the arena and coming from the blood of childbirth, I mean, that's not super surprising to me just simply because, you know, that was, uh, I mean, it was, that's why they had churchings later. I mean, you know, they were, they were looking at, um, at the old Testament law and they were saying, they were assuming that some kind of, um, you know, time of cleansing needed to happen before, you know, a woman could come back into at least, you know, to the temple or, um, into the church or whatever. So that, I mean, that part's not super surprising to me. Um, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily find it uh, troubling that, um, that they're needing to kind of cast aside these specific womanly experiences. Now, on the one hand, yes, maybe that's frustrating because it does imply that they need to be somehow more masculine by casting aside these experiences of the female body. On the other hand, it could, this is a story that is, you know, kind of focusing in tight on these women instead of the men, but it could also just be a way of showing that they need to um, kind of cast aside allegiance to the experiences of the body period of bodies that they're Mm -hmm. going out to Mm -hmm. voluntarily allow their bodies to be torn apart. And for these women, you know, their, um, their, their bodies are female bodies, you know, and in both cases, you know, kind of lactating bodies. So, I mean, for them to cast aside their body, that's what they're having to cast aside. And so they're had their, you know, and, and I, I, that's one of the things I actually really like about the story is that one, one, again, this is another, moment of of realism in the story that she is i actually love that part about her being grateful that when her baby when they refuse to give the baby back that she doesn't then immediately get mastitis like that (laughs) it's it's a really good detail because again you know that would happen you know if you just took someone's nursing baby away probably that person's going to immediately get mastitis and it's going to be kind of terrible at the very least have lots of pain right so i mean I, I again i i really actually really enjoy the bodily details in the story and i i think that um 
And I'm thinking through this too, just because if you think about in the early church and particularly in this area, and they have, they had so many controversies and they had so many times when you would have struggles with Gnosticism or, you know, there were all these different um, kind of ideas about the body and, you know, what does it mean? Is it completely negative? Is it something that we have to hate? Um, And so it's not surprising to me, I guess, that you would have a a scenario or a story in which um, they're, they're kind of, you know, directly repudiating or seeing these human womanly bodily experiences as somehow less important than the crown. Of oh yes. Yeah, it's it's um, not surprising you know. at all. I don't, I don't think. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I mean, you know, it, and it, it's, um, I, I don't know. I, I find it really interesting too, towards the end of the story when the crowd begins to become horrified a little bit by mm-hmm. the experiences they're going through and the, and the ways they're being kind of stripped. Um, and that, that part's interesting to me too, because, in that in that way, the text at least is putting it right in your face that these are women, that they're still women, even if they've set aside motherhood or set aside, um, you know, these other considerations. I also feel like it was interesting watching my women in class react to the fact that they're voluntarily setting their children aside and just leaving them to be raised by other people. Um, like one of my ladies went as far as she like wanted to do more research and she was comforted because she found who knows what it was. She found some source that seemed to suggest that 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 I think it was like Perpetua's son. It was purporting to be the, the continued story of him or, or, or told what happened to him, that he was OK, that like somebody else <laughs> raised him, and, you know, and, and that's so interesting, you know, that because, you know, she as a mother, she's hearing me tell her the story and she's thinking, well, what? what happened? Like, you know, um, and that it's such a human thing, right? We want to think about, we want to, we want to make sure that, um, that, you know, I don't know, this baby just didn't get cast aside. But, um, I also find it super interesting that Felicity didn't want, she wanted to give birth so she could go be martyred. Um, and, but she had, she had to give birth to do that because they wouldn't expose a pregnant woman in the arena. But the thing is the baby she ends up having, I think it says is a baby girl, and, mm-hmm. you know, the Romans would have been fine exposing that baby girl on a hillside anyway. Like, I, it's interesting to me this delicacy on the part of the Roman authorities to not kill a pregnant Christian woman. That's just really interesting to me that they would have that weird hang up about that when everything when when, you know, oh, but if she's not pregnant, fine. Throw her out there to be torn apart by mad cows or whatever it is. I, you know, um, anyway. Yeah, though, there is that's then all I got. that moment that you're mentioning with the crowd being horrified. Uh, looking at Felicity and realizing that she recently was pregnant because it, the editor describes her as her breasts still dripping with milk and the crowd's sort of like shocked to see this um, when Perpetua and Felicity are brought out just wearing nets and then so the crowd's shock means that they get sent back and they can wear robes instead of um, just wearing nets but that's to me that's an interesting moment where like maybe the female body and like the maternal body is actually being kind of uh, elevated in some way because of this like milk motif that we have in the text. Um, so we have like mm-hmm. the miraculous cessation of Perpetua's lactation. Um, but then we also have in the first vision um, where uh, Perpetua sees the shepherd milking the sheep and then the shepherd gives her this cheese or it's like milk because it says it's that cheese that he has milked so it's coming from the milk from the sheep right there um and when she takes that uh the the people dressed in white there's this crowd dressed in white in this paradise that she's envisioning they all say amen um and then perpetua wakes up with a sweet taste in her mouth so this is um 
with this vision that confirms to Perpetua and to her brother who had asked her for the vision that they'll be martyrs and um, the milk seems to represent here like the sweetness of their martyrdom and their welcome into paradise and it might be a reference to how in some early churches um, milk rather than wine was actually used at a baptismal Eucharist so it's like this kind of Eucharistic milk um, and in one of the early sermons on this text uh, the the sermon has the group of martyrs hearing of this vision pray uh, let not our confession of thee be dry that we also may be found worthy to be joined to thy precious flocks and not be separated from thy martyrs so it seems to be like linking the milk with this confession of christ that leads to martyrdom and like the sheep are equated with the martyrs there so i think maybe this detail of felicity lactating in the arena as well as being like a kind of one of these realistic details that we've been talking about um could be like a symbol of her martyrdom and her dedication to Christ. So it's like this more uh, positive way that the, the maternal female body could be treated on like a spiritual level, at least here. I mean, it's also interesting because that lactation kind of seems almost miraculous too, because if she's just given birth like two days That's ago and she's baby. been separated yeah. from her child, what's she doing with her milk already in and being like spontaneously lactating so that these distant spectators can see her? <laughs> That's what's going on. Um, so I think that that detail might be a little bit more positive, maybe. Um, but yeah. Any other thoughts on any of this? Um, I think the other thing that's that is interesting to note in terms of them not putting a pregnant woman in the arena, um, part of that, though, I think is it's not stated in the text, but historically, part of that would have been specific to Felicity being a slave. Um, oh, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. That yeah. child is property. And so mm. once that child is born, it becomes the property of whoever is own, whoever owns her. Uh, and so they actually wouldn't have had the legal right to put to put a pregnant slave. Okay. Because then makes, they're that's, endangering. That's good context. Oh yeah. yeah. They actually are then endangering the property of of, of the owner. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what was said um, about this, but what what came to mind in terms of I think it was about uh, about maleness and like sort of oh that's what it was about bodies. Um, there definitely is a, is a disregard for for the body, right? Because that's that's not what we're valuing here. We're valuing um, like spiritual excellence. Um, but there is this underlying anxiety. Um, for both women about sort of the performance of martyrdom of like, what does it look like for us to do this and do this right? Um, and I wonder how much of that stems from sort of the overarching theological framework that, that was there. Um, sort of in, in that same, that same idea of what kind of suffering is valuable. So like, the suffering of, of childbirth was not valuable in part because if we go back to, you know, interpretations of Genesis, that's, that's what you get. Right. Yep. Um, <laughs> you know, unfortunately that's like, let's not talk about my feelings about that particular interpretation, but um, you know, if, if that's not something that is, that is acceptable as, as a means of suffering, then this is the next step. So, so if gendered suffering like, like, are we making, are we making martyrdom gendered? Like, is that, 
I guess is part of the question. Like if, if, if the text itself is telling us that the bodily suffering that is specific to women is not, is not sufficient. Is, is there something to martyrdom that they're trying to argue is, is inherently male? I think that's probably could be part of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just, I wonder at at the level of anxiety, I mean, sort of what we've already been talking about. It just, in my notes here, it just has, has struck me. Um, yeah, with all of the things that we've been talking about in terms of, you know, early childbirth, giving up your child, alienation of, of parental relationships, et cetera, like that, that anxiety of like performance of martyrdom, even her pinning her hair up, you know, feels like this performance of like, I have to do this a certain way for it to be valid. Um, Particularly, I, and I, I was thinking when you were talking just now too, that it's interesting that, that they wouldn't necessarily you know, think, think more highly of, of having to sacrifice or give away their own children to, you know, um, to be, to go be martyred. It's interesting that they wouldn't Mm -hmm. think more highly of that themselves, at least these women, because it makes them like Mary, you know, I mean, we don't like, yeah, yeah. you know, that was, that's the sacrifice of Mary, right. Is, is, is one, you know, giving her body to God so that she has to carry, you know, this, the child of, of God, but then also to give away her son. And so it's interesting that they wouldn't, um, that these women at least would not think of that as, you know, a noble thing to be given away, you know, to, to, to give their children away, um, to others or to have to separate from their child and in that way. Yeah. Very interesting connection there. Okay, so let's move on to the passing on section where we'll give our recommendations for further reading or listening or watching to our listeners. Uh, So for myself, I'm going to recommend just a brief video um, where Laura Nasrallah, one of the professors at Yale Divinity School, discusses the Acts of Paul and Thecla, which is another early Christian text where we have a woman playing a prominent role, though not as the writer. And it's also, it's a second century text um, before the Passion of Perpetua and Felicity. It was also referenced by Tertullian, so we know it's um, earlier. And uh, Thecla in this text is converted by Paul and rejects marriage. Um, so it has all these different contrasts with First Timothy, which is interesting. And um, in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, we have Paul's teachings disrupting family relations. So again, uh, Christian connections would seem to replace immediately immediate familial connections. Um, so anyway, it's a text that I haven't read yet, but I want to read at some point. And um, this video is just a little introduction to it. I'll link it in the show notes. Also at one point in the text, um, apparently Thecla is almost eaten by flesh-eating seals. So that's fun thing (laughs) Uh, Katie what's your recommendations so as I've been um, working through my legacies of faith class with these ladies we've been coming further forward in time and this Tuesday coming Tuesday is our last class and I'm going to be talking about Amy Carmichael so um, famous missionary to India Amy Carmichael so I've been working through various texts of her so the text I'm recommending today is a little very small little book by Amy Carmichael called if um, and it's kind of a series of meditations um, on I, one, one reference I saw said on on First Corinthians 13, but of of what is true 
love. Um, the subtitle is What Do I Know of Calvary Love? And so it's kind of a series of, again, very short meditations. Um, and so like one um, that I was looking at this morning um, is if, if I feel injured when another lays to my charge, things that I know not, forgetting that my sinless Savior trod this path to the end, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Um, and every meditation ends with Then I Know Nothing of Calvary Love. But it's a great little book because um, you can kind of take one of these little, you know, meditations and 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 really kind of dig in and think about it and um a lot of and it and it's very uncomfortable to read but in a good way um because she's she's very much kind of pricking at our sense of self-importance you know um and a lot of these meditations focus on if i um, become unreasonable for minor reasons um then i don't know anything about the love of christ um and i i've really found it convicting reading it this week and it's a kind of book that you could either sit down and read the entire book in an hour even maybe um or you could kind of look at these, you know, take one of these each day over several months and just kind of think about it. So that's my recommendation today, If by Amy Carmichael. Thanks, Katie. What about you, Anna? Uh, I actually have two. They're very different. One academic, one pop culture, um, since those are my, you know, two favorite things to intersect. Um, So the first is The Passion of Perpetua and Felicity by Thomas J. Heffernan. Um, which if you can find it in the library, do that because <laughs> uh, the Amazon price is a lot right now. Um, but it actually is the text of Perpetual and Felicity with commentary. Uh, it's a huge volume, but if you're interested in super fun, weird, nerdy details about the text, this is the book for you. Um, it was super helpful for me in all of my papers. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a great, great resource. Uh, and then on the pop culture side and moving into more uh, modern day martyrs, um, I love the film Romero. I've watched it, I don't know how many times, at least a dozen, uh, and is available right now to watch, I believe, on Amazon Prime uh, to stream for free. So it's it's worth watching. Um, it gives you great context on martyrdom, on um, faith and justice, on... Uh, U.S. intervention in South and Central America. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a great film uh, and and worth a watch if you haven't seen it. Thanks, Anna. And mm-hmm. I should tell you, listeners, that the Heffernan English translation is the one that we've been referencing in this episode. Um, and so, thank you again for joining us, Anna, as a guest in this episode. Of course, thank you for inviting me. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Christian Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Katie Grubbs and Anna Kelsey Powell, I'm Marie Haas. Until then, in essentials unity, and non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>